Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Change of bowling at the Martin and Every day, hundreds of thousands of us are building a future we can all be proud of. For over 36 years, the growth CBUS My Super Investment option has returned an average of 8.98% per annum for its members, while investing in projects that not only create jobs, but a better future. CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is a Final Word story time with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. I, as you may have heard off the top with that little teaser, am at the Oval. The lights are on and plenty of people have returned home. It's the first day of crowds at the county championship since 2019 we have a capacity of 4100 here at the oval today in keeping with the government guidelines and i've elected to sit on the balcony at the Vauxhall end of the ground outside so that you'll be able to hear the 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 sounds of the last half an hour or so of this first session on day one hello jeff Hello, and it's nice to have a little glimpse of the place through the video screen as well to know that it's still out there, that you know the, the grounds exist, um, there are pictures bobbing up from various press boxes around the country and, and to have people back in is a, a pretty special moment. It is, it is, and I, and I think that th- there's a couple of different points to this really. A lot of people who love county championship cricket are elderly. They have been shielding for nearly 18 months. They haven't been able to so much as go to the shops. They've had to have people bring groceries in and, and so forth mm-hmm. for, for such large chunks of the last 
yeah, 15, 16, 17 months that being able to come here today, whether it's with a couple of sandwiches or a thermos or whatever it is, yeah, it's probably going to rain. I don't expect we've got a lot of cricket in over the next four days, but based on the forecast, mm-hmm. but it would have been quite special for, for those uh, fans of the championship who, who hold it dear and have missed out and watched a lot of it on live streams, but there's nothing quite like being here. So, yeah, an important day <laughs> on that road back to whatever normality will be when this is all over. I have a, a little something for those of our listeners who may have enjoyed on Wednesday me reading back to you your YouTube search history to have you. There's more. I just just because I, I popped in to look up a couple of things today. I mean, you're remarkably busy on there as well. But I, I, you know, there are a couple of my entries in there as well, which which I'll skip over. You know, searching for historical cricket Australia AGMs and so on. You know, just being a cool guy with a cool life. But. Um, yeah, just to, to skip through Adam's recent searches, Entrance Set You Free, <laughs> Steve Smith Cricket Academy. <laughs> well, Entrance Set You Free, one of the great bangers of our time, no doubt. One of the best songs of the 90s. As for the Steve Smith Cricket Academy, I was just fascinated to see whether there was some reference to the fact that uh, the timing of Smith having said that he wanted to be captain again the same interview mm-hmm. it was when he was launching that youtube channel and remember there was like eight videos on there on that on that yep. day there's been nothing since so mm. one day of content where you could learn how to hold a bat like steve and run between the wickets in the space of 90 seconds allegedly but yeah he, he's not been that active on the youtube since now obviously he was at the ipl but i would have thought at least there would have been a bit of you know hotel quarantine action or maldive stuff or, or whatever mm. but no not to be not to be. Uh, Viv Richards, Wacker, 1988. Uh, Colwyn Bay <laughs> Cricket Club, Glamorgan. I keep saying you're obsessed with Colwyn Bay. <laughs> now I find you're, you're searching YouTube videos of Colwyn Bay Cricket there was, Club. There was an innings I was looking for and I thought it might be on there, which mm-hmm. was referenced on commentary the other day. But no, there's nothing there in... In, I thought if there was going to be anything on there, it would be that, a Sunday league game from the 80s. But And also, the uh, what was the one before? Viv Richards, 88, is relevant to the conversation we're about to have, shall we say. <laughs> uh, Rex Hunt interview 3AW. Rex Hunt interview. Rex Hunt, I got my rocks off. Rex Hunt rocks off. You can, you can blame Dylan Leach for most of that, friend of the show, who had me down a Rex Hunt spiral the other day, and I was trying to find whether the famous interview, the one that most people will probably remember from Tony Martin's uh, skit on it, mm-hmm. it, was anywhere on YouTube, and surprisingly it wasn't. But I, as you can see, had a pretty decent crack at trying to find it. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you did spot the other day that somebody had got Rex Hunt in a McDonald's to do a, a stretch of sort of early nineties Geelong team commentary. Um, that that he was, I think he had Bearstow to to Hocking to Couch and then all the way to Ablett. Yeah, and I'll avoid doing the Ablett because there's um, well, it, it's it's probably not the right place for it given people are having a, mm. a nice day at the cricket. But yeah, I did say that. That's actually what <laughs> Dylan directed me to. He said, "Watch this," and I did, and okay. thus went on the Rex Hunt <laughs> spiral. <laughs> not the first time, okay. not the last time. Well, the last three items on on your recent search list were, of course, Merger Match 1996, (laughs) Dunstall 100 1996, and Fraser Gehrig 100. (laughs) Well, you can probably work out how that's happened, can't you? Fraser Gehrig, I mean, it's nice to try and work out in sequence where I've gone. So the the Fraser Gehrig 100th goal was because of the interview he did on Triple M last week. Then I'm like, let's go back and watch 
Jace's 100s from 1996. And when that YouTube footage wasn't very good and quite grainy, I'm like, I'm going to have to watch the whole game's video to get the bit in question. And Anthony Costa has kindly uploaded the entirety of the merger match in 1996. I was able to spool forward to the bit when uh, Jace kicked his 100th. And me and my best mate, Heath Evans, ran onto the ground as um, Heath, of course, who future talent uh, sports cards, they've been partners of us on the final word in the past. But um, Heath and I, my brother Ben, sprinted out from the from the southern stand uh, to get close to Jason. And Heath uh, had his um, scarf stolen when running on the ground. He says stolen, it might have fallen off, whatever it was. But he didn't come back with the scarf, and I think he was in trouble for it as well. But all worth it, wouldn't change a thing. <laughs> all right. Well, just wanted to uh, to make sure that yeah we had, we had a little follow up to that. <laughs> what may become a recurring segment. <laughs> on the show um, but but I suppose we should get on with the business at hand yes I think we should we have uh, we have a job in front of us and it relates to a game we play each day on the weekend called Nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge the game of nerds the game of pledges the game we play with the people on our patron page who support the show uh, they help us make this show without them we wouldn't be able to make this show and they do that with donations uh, you know sometimes small sometimes larger mostly small small is fine small is beautiful and uh, and those donations come in the form of not just a regular sort of round number but a very specific number of 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 units of currency a number that relates in some way to cricket and we have to work out what that number represents now, before i get into it i should specify that i think probably a week ago i said we'll do julio pledge soon i lied we're not going to do julio pledge this week because we've got a, a couple more numbers than usual but next week i've scheduled it so that we have a, a lighter number load and so that i can invest the full appropriate amount of time and, and effort into julio pledge a, a segment which i enjoy what you know, once in a while when it comes around. Yeah, give it the attention it deserves. And you're right, this is a particularly hefty show we have coming up. Uh, new numbers, but lots of revisits. So mm. the first of those, Jeff, uh, was from Al Saunders, 146, and it came with a clue. Yep, Al says, I've started with a modest amount, but it relates to one of my earliest cricket memories. I'm about the same age as you guys. Well... If it doesn't involve running onto the MCG and losing your <laughs> scarf, then uh, it could relate to something else. Yeah, and this is why I was looking up Viv Richards, 1988 Wacker, to watch it back. Uh, as soon as I saw 146 and worked out that, you know, uh, Al, as he says here, is, is our age, it could only be one thing, really. And the beautiful thing is it's, it's probably my first Test match memory, too. I remember that that day well uh, because, of course, test matches starting later at the Wacker, mm-hmm. just for whatever reason, that was a point of fascination to me as a as a four-year-old I mean I suppose it's just at that point when you're starting to pick up what's going on in a bit more depth and I couldn't believe that it was three hours the other way in Perth and 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 thus and so it goes but on that particular day it's when Viv went bananas for the last time really against Australia and it was an innings that for a long time I, I sort of thought of was like the gold standard the best possible innings because it was highlighted by the, the Commonwealth Bank Cricket Academy coaching video that we've talked about on, mm-hmm. on the final word in the past. But in that tape, they talk about playing a pull shot off the front foot. 
and it's almost held up as like the most difficult shot in cricket. And Viv plays it repeatedly in this innings where they go on to show mm. the highlights from from December 1988. So, yeah, watching it back as I did on YouTube, as you pointed out, he only faced 150 balls for 146, three sixes and 21 boundaries. Rob Linda describes it as Viv's incredible innings with no further context, which kind of shows that people of a certain age all, all really do remember this. Ian Chappell was, was introing it as well in the highlights, uh, saying that it was mm-hmm. Viv who was going to be doing the intimidating at the Wacker rather than the surface, and, and that was very much true. Up against Merv, who of course took a hat-trick later in the Test match, he slams mm-hmm. him straight down the ground to bring up his half-century, and you hear that crash into the sight screen uh, later as well when he's facing Tim May and smacking him straight back over his head. There's that tall on-drive that he used to play so well off Steve Waugh, mm-hmm. all that power. The front foot pull shot that I mentioned already, that was off Tony Dottomade, and Bill's like, oh dear, oh dear, when he, when he plays the shot, and it, <laughs> and it rushes away to the mid-wicket rope. It ends up being his 23rd test century. He came back on 95, I think it was, for day two, and yeah, 23rd and penultimate test 100, and the final of those against Australia, mm-hmm. and he celebrated it by driving Jeff Lawson over extra cover for six which wasn't really a dumb thing in 1988 mm. when we're playing on sort of full boundaries and bats before they are as they are now. Um, you didn't see players mm. come down and go inside out over extra cover. Viv was obviously well ahead of his time. It was his only century for the series. He was captain in 88, 89, and they won comfortably 3-1. They lost at Sydney, but yeah, he still made 446 mm. runs at 56 and four other scores past 50 along the way. So in many respects, it was the perfect farewell to Australia for him at age 36 captain of the side a comfortable victory and one of his most memorable centuries in a test match that was uh, well remembered for other things as well including the Merv hat trick and Jeff Lawson breaking his jaw thanks Kurtley Ambrose but that all came later early on it was all Viv (laughs) very nice Um, I'm sure that is the memory if if Al Saunders says that um, that's pretty much his earliest cricket memory as well so that is the 146 for you Al a double header Coming up next, uh, $4.29 belonging to Daniel O'Connell, who is not the pub, and Brooke Quinn. Um, I I had a message actually from Daniel O'Connell only earlier today saying that he was looking for highlights from the 2014 Australian Tour to South Africa that we were talking about on Wednesday, and they don't seem to exist online. And I followed up and had a look around as well, and, and he's right. They're not on Cricket Australia's website. They're not anywhere on YouTube. There are a couple of places that did have YouTube versions of them where it said that they were taken down because of a copyright claim by Cricket South Africa, who I can't understand why they would own the rights. But it, it's, it seems fairly weird that, you know, a celebrated recent series um, is not available to watch. It happens more often than you think. You, you try and find test matches from England in the last 10 years, and I think the Stuart Broad century from memory only went up on YouTube like in the last six months, for example. Just like mm-hmm. you'd think that that'd be something that people would, like me, be searching for quite a bit yeah. and would come up in their internet <laughs> search history. But yeah, for various reasons, they've, they've only had like these sort of um, clips, highlights packages. So, yeah. That, that, but they don't even have that. There aren't even highlights. There's right. nothing. There's, yeah. there's nothing that I could find. If anybody knows anything more, then, then let me know. But there's, the only thing that I could find was a, a cricket.com clip of Ryan Harris talking about that test match in which they had a few little you know, five-second grabs of, of some of the play. Okay. But there's nothing. There's no sort of highlights packages or anything. So why is Cricket South Africa suppressing a great test series? Why won't Cricket South Africa put the Rex Hunt Get Your Rocks Off video <laughs> up on YouTube? Why are you holding it back from the public that wants...
How did it go? We, the girl's happy. She's got reform. no money. I've got my rocks off. <laughs> How good's this? We need reform at CSA. <laughs> we need reform immediately. Right, the double header for Dan O'Connell. I was looking at a couple of different uh, innings returns in test matches of four for 29 mm-hmm. because there are a couple of belters involving recent thrashings of the Australian test team. Muhammad Abbas on that concrete pitch at Dubai, that Mm. sort of completely beige, barren, flat thing where he somehow got the ball to seam around in both innings of the Dubai Test in in 2018. A little bit of reverse swing. He was moving it away from the left-handers into the right-handers, getting edges behind from the lefties, getting LBs to the the right-handers, and then brought in that very short straight mid-on and had Aaron Finch caught there, which was a a pretty remarkable bit of of bowling and, and planning to make that happen. So in the first innings, Finch, then Mitchell Marsh on the pad, Stark caught behind, Siddle bowled. Got three more in the second innings as well. Finch again with both the Marsh brothers. And then couldn't quite get through Usman Khawaja at the end to win the test match, but still bowled absolutely sensationally on uh, an unhelpful surface, shall you say. And then the contrast of that, there was that four for 29 versus another four for 29 taken by Dilrawan Pereira, the Sri Lankan off-spinner, in 2016, on the day when he clean-bowled Usman Khawaja twice on the same day. <laughs> so the contrasts of the Khawaja career, if you will, from his, his highest point in one 4 for 29 match to definitely his lowest point in the other. He, was, he faced six balls in the morning and was out from the sixth ball he faced and then came out in the evening after Sri Lanka had batted again and was out first ball, shouldering arms and letting it hit his stumps. So Dilrawan Pereira in that match also made 64 when he batted, plus 16 in the first innings and took six wickets in the second. So he made 80 runs and took 10 wickets for the match. Fairly handy mm. when you've thrashed Australia in less than half the time. They, they won it by lunch on day three. I mean, it was put your feet up for a couple of days. I remember when that test match was over, Jeff. I was covering uh, the first season of the Kia Super League, so the... Uh, mm. domestic women's T20 comp and I think I was at Loughborough and thinking to myself I might have tweeted this I can't wait to read what Jeff and Bredig are going to write <laughs> after this collapse and I, from memory uh, you both delivered in spades absolutely <laughs> skewering the batting lineup, especially Kawaja in your case Jeff after he got bowled by the same spinner twice in the same mm. day and, same and, the, ball. And, and the same ball and shouldering arms a second time so I mean, it's, it's not fun watching players fail, don't get me wrong, and we never enjoy seeing players do poorly, but sometimes it can be the catalyst for some enjoyable writing, if nothing else. Sometimes that's the only good thing you can get out of yeah. it, I suppose, is being able to write something. But there were those two 4 for 29s, and then I just happened to notice a little spicy extra 4 for 29, because we've talked a fair bit about Vijay Hazare in the last few weeks. Um, Have we early. ever? <laughs> Early Indian champion, known more as a batsman. So in December 1947, this is a couple of tests before he, he makes twin tons at Adelaide Oval in, in his, his great performance. Uh, he, he did all right with the ball. He was bowling seam up and he knocked over a chap called Don Bradman for 13 and then Lindsay Hassett for six and Ray Lindwell and Don Tallon as well. Finished with four for 29. India bowled out Australia for 107 in reply to 188 for India in the first innings. And then India seven down for 61 in the third innings of the match when it all got completely rained off. There'd been a lot of rain in the last few days as well. So it was all set for a a low-scoring thriller, but it didn't happen. But a curious little thing that did happen in that match is the one time Australia batted, there was a dismissal that did not involve Vijay Hazare of a, a certain Australian opener who was out for 18, 
who was run out. And funnily enough, was run out at the non-striker's end. Ah. Uh, his name was Bill Brown, and Vinu Mancad did the honours. So as Vijay Hazare took four for 29, uh, it all kicked off with the original Vinu Mancad intervention uh, for which he is remembered, among other things, to this day. Fantastic. I reckon that might be the most likely of the three four for 29s you've just raised there, Jeff. So mm. cheers to Daniel O'Connell for getting back in the queue, one of our re-pledges, and to Brooke Quinn. So, no, I, th- I think Daniel's a new one. I think Daniel Daniel hasn't been on before. I think Brooke's coming around for a second swing. My apologies. Um, I, I thought Daniel... Okay, so I thought Daniel had a pledge with us earlier this year. Maybe it was a piece of correspondence that we shared from him. That, in fact, We discussed Daniel because just after we'd been talking about the Dan O'Connell pub a lot right. for a couple of weeks... Okay. He signed up with a pledge, and I thought that it was someone taking the piss. But it's actually <laughs> someone named Daniel O'Connell. And he's like, I get that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Brooke Quinn, who is having a second swing, uh, he has left us a clue, Jeff. Brooke has said this number is not for Tony Dodamaid, who presumably is cap number 429. Is that what we're going with? You know what? It's not cap number 429. I have no idea why Dodders uh, and 429 no. was the yeah, that would be, He'd thought. be far too early for 429, wouldn't he? Yeah, and in the end, I thought about he'd going be back. he When I worked out what the number eventually was, with a bit of help from Brooke mm. along the way, I thought maybe I'll go back full circle and try and work out the Dodders reference but I haven't had time Uh for that but we'll get to the we'll get to the answer in a sec (laughs) okay so it's not for Tony Dodder but he Tony points the way to two great performances by two of the game's greats it's about where he came from and the two roles he played in the team i.e. batting and bowling think two memorable performances from very famous players one in each discipline for Dottermaid, who was a Victorian. Yes, he was a Victorian all-rounder. I spent some time looking at Footscray all-rounders because that's where he played club cricket with Merv Hughes and I suppose he would have played with Colin Miller as well at, at different stages. But mm. in the end, Brooke set me straight and said, I'm, I'm going too deep into this. It's not about um, it's mm-hmm. not about Footscray and it's not trying to separate the four from the 29 at one stage. I thought that might have been where we were trending. But no, it, it's just about two masterful performances from two Victorians, one with the ball and one with the bat. So once we got to that point, I was cooking with gas, as Ted Hastings might say. Mm-hmm. And interesting, of course, that we were talking about Tony Dottermade, but a few minutes ago when referencing Al Saunders and, and the, and the uh, Viv Richards 146, he was, he was leading that attack alongside Merv Hughes and uh, Jeff Lawson, of course. Anyway, so mm-hmm. 429 with the bat, Victorian. I'm glad that it played out this way because I, I know of Bill Ponsford's 429. I, I know that it happened. I've never looked at it before. Never looked at. Well, I probably have looked at the scorecard, but never looked at it in any depth. And I'm and I'm glad that I have now. So you go back to William Harold Ponsford uh, and his third mm-hmm. game of first class cricket, playing right. against Tasmania at the MCG in the summer of mm-hmm. 2223. So nearly 100 years ago. We should celebrate that next year, Jeff. Anyway. And so it's not a Shield game. Tassie don't come into the Shield until the 70s, but it's still a first-class fixture. It's a timeless game. Tassie are all out for 2.17 in the first innings. And despite him only playing for the third time, he's already captain of this side. They obviously saw something in his leadership in the ranks and, and gave him the armband. Yeah. Anyway, so he is an opening, as we expect with Ponsford. He's actually batting number five, and he walks in at 200 for three. So considering mm-hmm. Tasmania made 2.17, yes, they're in a strong position, but it's not impregnable 200 for three yeah. chasing 217 look you know you might be all out for 300 and and you know it's broadly not necessarily game on you're still well ahead of it but there's mm-hmm. still some work to do uh, the second time around with the ball and maybe the second time around with the bat as well so 
That didn't happen. 477 minutes later, after 42 boundaries, Ponsford was the eighth man out with Victoria having just clicked over 1,000. 1,001 for eight, to be precise, when he, when he was out for 429. <laughs> um, they added 801 runs while he was out there across eight hours. 801 runs he was there for. Mm-hmm. Victoria ended up making 1,059 in 186 overs, which is some clip. Of course, it's probably enough. It's probably yeah. enough. But you don't want to judge it until both teams have batted on it. You well, know? They, by that point, they had. So they've, they've got more than 800 <laughs> runs to play with when Tasmania bat a second time. So, I mean, at this stage, it's the highest score in first-class cricket, as well as the highest team score. So no one had made 1,000 runs before. No one had made a quadruple right. century before. So both of those boxes were ticked in the space of, mm-hmm. of, uh, of the eight hours that Ponsford was batting. It would be overtaken by the 1,107 that Victoria make against New South Wales mm-hmm. four years later in 1926. On that occasion, Ponsford, the lazy bastard, didn't go on with it. He only made the 356 so uh, so he was he was opening by that point and he'd obviously had enough <laughs> remarkably out of the 1059 though there was only one other century maker a bloke by the name of Hampton Love who was the wicketkeeper he'd go on to play one test mm, match who, who we've spoken about before I think on the show yeah. Hampton Love a great name you know are you ready for a little bit of Hampton Love <laughs> well he only got one test match but it's like a decade on at the Brisbane Bodyline Test which we referenced mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago as well Love made 156 and they put on 336 for the fifth wicket which Bill was just getting his eye mm-hmm. in by that point of course so Tassie all out 176 a second time around Victoria win by in innings and 666 runs, which at the time was the heaviest first-class defeat. And it is still the second heaviest defeat in the history of first-class cricket. It was mm-hmm. defeated in 1964 when a little team called Dera Ishmael Khan <laughs> at Lahore... You might have heard of them. <laughs> ...lost by an innings and 851 runs. So this was, this was in pole position until Dera Ishmael Khan came along. <laughs> in the 11th... In the 1107 game, in the 1107 game, how do you want to say it? That was the second biggest defeat by an innings at the time, but they fell 10 runs short of what they were able to achieve four years earlier. It was an innings and 656 runs on that Uh. occasion. So that's the game in question. As for Ponsford... Right, there are two things to this, right? So the 429 is the Ponsford batting part, Yep, and then there's something else. There is. There's the bowling part as well. I just want to... Just want to round off on on Ponsford on a couple of uh, side points here. There's some parts of his career that, whilst we've discussed and touched on, I didn't realise quite how profound they were. So the first of which is that he was the first, well, he's the only player uh, until Brian Lara came along to make two quadruple centuries. Of course, he bettered that Mm. later on. He made a second quadruple in 1926. At one stage between 1926 and 1928, he made 11 consecutive centuries in first-class games in Australia. 11 games in a row in Australia, he made centuries. And just a last point in passing. Jeff, we've, we've often talked about what, what Ponsford and Bradman were able to achieve in the 1934 mm. Ashes series, the, the partnership of 388 at Leeds when Bradman makes his triple in the defining mm-hmm. match of the series. And then when they put the cherry on top at the Oval, when they put on their record partnership of 452. 451, sorry, 451, which they added in 316 minutes. What I didn't realise and didn't quite process was that that was his last test match. Talk about going out on top. Two monster centuries in Leeds at the Oval. Mm. Two of the biggest partnerships in the history of test cricket. And at age 34, he's like, that's enough. I've had my fill. Mm. I'm done. So talk about retiring at the top of your game. But yes, 47 first-class hundreds, an average of 65 and died in 1991 
at age 90 when he was the oldest living test player and, of course, has the grandstand named after him at the MCG in tribute. Remarkable. And deserved it, you know. You bloody should have a grandstand named after you, particularly <laughs> walking away from it at that age. So 429, that's 429 with the bat. What's 429 with the ball? Yeah, this was easier, and I should say that Surrey at lunch are 95 without loss with Stoneman 46, I think it says over there, and Burns 45, so a good session for mm-hmm. the home side after Middlesex sent them in. Uh, 429 with the ball was easy. Shame worn. Semi-final, World oh, yeah. Cup, 1999. Yep. Yep. The 2.13 game, the magic number, when, of course, he, mm-hmm. he bowls um, Gibbs. Who, I mean, we made a documentary about this uh, last year for The Greatest Season That Was, where we had yep. Gilchrist, Moody, Elworthy, Klusner, Tim Lane, Damien Fleming, Simon Mann, all talking about their reflections. And all of them said the same thing about Gibbs's innings, that at that point in time, they thought it was game over. Six boundaries in the first five overs. They're thinking we are absolutely cooked here. And then Warren bowls in with a delivery, which is just as good as the, the one that he, that he sent down to Mike Gadding in 1993, six summers earlier. So, and then he goes through Kirsten, Cronier off the boot, Callis with the final ball of his spell, so much deeper into the game. And his final figures were four for 29 after an initial spell of eight overs, four maidens, three for 12 when he put a gap in him. And, of course, the game was tied on 2-1-3, and the rest is history. So that is the answer for the batting performance was Ponsford. And the bowling performance was Shane Warne. 4.29. Thank you, Brooke. That is the 4.29 for Dan O'Connell and Brooke Quinn. Uh, Adam has relocated inside, if you notice a change in the sound quality. As we move on to the number £2.28 pence from Harry Wojciechowski. There is a clue from Harry. There is. So the clue from Harry is it's... A composer pulled in church, ravished, spelt R-A-V-I-S-H-E-D, and it also Mm -hmm. relates to a test match, Jeff. Uh, Yep, that's what we had to work with. Okay, a composer pulled in church. Uh, That that said to me, that suggested to me that it had to involve Neil Wagner, a.k.a. Neil Wagner, Uh, the... Composer, the author of the Ring Cycle, or as I like to call it, the Doug Ring Cycle. You know, if we could, if we could get, if any time we can get Doug Ring involved, I think we should. So it's got to be Wagner. It's got to be Wagner, and in church would be in Christchurch because he plays for New Zealand. So something involving Neil Wagner in Christchurch, and something that involves a player going by the name of Ravi. Now. Wagner, too late to be Ravi Shastri, too late to be Ravi Bapara, or as much as I would like to get Ravi Bapara involved for you, Adam. Yeah, no, I, I um, <laughs> well, it definitely isn't Ravi Bapara. When I first looked at this, I, I, I looked at Dinesh Chandimal having made mm-hmm. uh, 56 off 228 balls in a test match at Christchurch when Neil Wagner oh, yeah. was bowling. But unfortunately, Good. there was no Ravi link there and had to look further afield. Mm-hmm. But a couple of years after that, 2020, Christchurch, Neil Wagner was batting rather than bowling and was the ninth wicket to fall. As it so happens, the score at the time was 228. He was playing against India, had made 21 at the time, was doing some swinging, which is what he generally does, just tries to have a big clout. And who should catch him in the deep with an absolute blinder but Ravi Ravindra Jadeja. It was, you'd say, 
one of those great catches, but Jadeja takes so many of them that you know it, it, it might it might not even get into his top five. Who knows? But it, it was an absolute spectacular effort. Yeah, and watching the the, the catch on YouTube, <laughs> as you can tell from my search history earlier, uh, that I think that what stood out to me was that it's a sort of catch you often will see in a one-day game or, or more a T20 mm-hmm. game. We're conditioned to seeing one arm stuck out on the boundary, but so rarely in a test match with the red ball in the mm-hmm. whites. That's why it's such a striking bit of fielding because it's so, you know, if you're standing at deep backwards square leg or whatever it was, I think it was deep mid-wicket actually in, in the case mm-hmm. of uh, this particular instance, you're expecting to, yeah, maybe take a catch that's skied to you or, or to do plenty of work on the rope as a sweeper, but not to take a catch like that. The the one hand, uh, the, the lean back, so... If you want to go and look it up, uh, that would be a, a good time to do so. And because we did it last week, why not have a little listen to Ian Smith commentating that catch? Oh! Something. 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 Unbelievable. Quite incredible. Quite possibly one of the greatest outfield catches in the history of the game. Because of the way it was hit, this will live long in your memory, folks, if you love the game. Unbelievable. One of the greatest of all time. Oh, yes. And Neil Wagner still looks back in amazement. Thank you, Harry, and thank you to Ian Smith, and especially thank you, Ravindra Jadeja, for making it all possible. Next up, 5.40, another double header. Jim Carnegie and Chris Prout, and they've both gone with 5.40. Jeff, we have a clue from Jim. It is mm-hmm. as follows, and this took us a while, but we got there in the end. So this is actually a combination of a few clues that we had to get off uh, Jim to mm-hmm. uh, get us to the starting <laughs> line. The number is statistically significant to the player in three stats over two categories and very nearly one more. Think of a couple of statistics over different versions of our great game. I would have felt sheepish pledging that number, so I had to times mm-hmm. it by 10. A modern-day DOB... In one format, also a modern-day rebel, but his name would suggest otherwise. Right. Right. Okay. So 540, which actually means 54, which it can, Jim. You don't need to worry about timesing it by 10 because, you know, 5.40 could mean 54. Statistically significant to a player in three different statistics over two forms of the game. And... I feel this is one of these ones in retrospect I feel like I should have been able to to snag onto this a little bit earlier but when it when there was the suggestion that one game of this person played one match in one format and many in the others well it kind of has to be Stuart Law doesn't it and when you think of the 54 you think oh yes Stuart Law 54 that's what it's all about because Stuart Law played one test match and in that test match he made 54 not out. He also played a lot of one-day internationals before T20s existed, so there were only two formats. And so those stats, the statistics, the categories that you put together, okay, it's his total number of test runs. It's also his test highest score, which is another statistical category. And had he been dismissed, it would have been his test average, but Mm. he doesn't have a test average, famously, because he wasn't dismissed. When you look at lists ranking people by average, 
if there's a player who's never been out, they do assume their total number of runs mm. as their mm. average. So he's sort of he's slotted in with the ghost average of 54 if you look <laughs> at the all-time averages list, but he doesn't actually have one. But the thing that might actually interest Jim Carnegie is it's actually four statistical categories that he could have been 54 in because, and I think the one that Jim was alluding to, he did play a lot of one-day internationals. He only played one test match. How many one-day internationals did he play? 54. 54. That's right. <laughs> so, so he's got total runs, highest score, and number of one days played 54, and it should have been his test average as well had he been able to get himself out, which I suppose is anathema. Uh, if you were hoping to play more test matches, you wouldn't get yourself out, so he didn't. But, yes, a, a modern dusty old bastard, or, or I suppose you say a, um, a dusty old bastard in waiting another 60 or 80 years down the line. Uh, he might graduate into the ranks of the DOBs when we are long gone and, and dust is all that remains. Yeah, in a number of ways too. When you think about it, a lot of our DOBs have had illustrious first-class careers but just didn't get much of an mm. opportunity at test level. And, and Law's the, sort of the epitome of that. You look at the, the body of work over such a long stretch of time, 79 first-class hundreds, 30 for Essex, 23 for Lancashire and 25 for Queensland. So we think of him as like the drought-breaking shield skipper that led Queensland mm. to victory in 1994-95 and four subsequent times, so the first time they won the Shields. But in England, he was a, a tour de force. Uh, and, he, and he had British citizenship by the end of his career as well. In theory, he could have mm. tried to have played Test cricket over here and added to that tally of one from back in December 1995 when he played against Sri Lanka and debuted with Ricky Ponting. But he, of course, by that stage of his career, he was the, the captain at Lancashire and was doing his thing. I like the rebel reference there too, Jeff, and the name and all the rest of it, because he was a rebel. He, he, mm. yeah, he didn't play in the World Series and he didn't play you know, in, on any rebel tours, but he did play in the Indian Cricket League in 2008, that, uh, <laughs> that competition that ran alongside the IPL initially, which Shaw players suspended. So he did get in a lot of trouble at the end of his career for making that mm. decision. He, he got back into the county ranks after and played... A few games with Derbyshire at the very, very end, but it meant that he lost his job as captain of Lancashire, as, as I understand it. So that was at the very tail end of his career. But per the clue from Jim, he didn't have a name that was mm. rebellious. The name, of course, is Law. You're not a rebel if your last name's uh-huh. Law. So uh, lots of different pointers there. He's a lawman. Um, and, you know, he, he's what he perhaps should be remembered for playing for Australia was that innings in the semi-final in the 96 World Cup, the West Indies game when he and Bevan absolutely dug Australia out of a huge hole and got them just enough runs for Shane Warne to bowl out the West Indies. Yeah, and he was an all-rounder in that era as well, must be remembered. He was bowling a lot of overs as sort of second change medium pacer and that's why he was an important part of that 96 World Cup. And in some respects unlucky not to make it to 99 because he was still you know, very much at the peak of his career but he had a trough in 98-99 mm. in the one-day team and lost his spot. Oh, he's, he's here today, of course. He's at the Oval as well. He's the coach of Middlesex. I see a lot of Stuart and interview him quite a lot um, as part of my mm. job at the moment, but he was the, the coach of the West Indies for a couple of years, the coach of Bangladesh, so still very much involved in the game. Lives over here, lives in I think, well, when he's not coaching at, at Lords, I think he lives somewhere up north, uh, well, in Lancashire where his wife's from, so yeah, he's very much in the UK and lives here full-time now, but yeah, the most famous and most distinguished of Queensland captains as well. 
Good work, Jim. Good hinting. Uh, thank you for that. Now, the other 540 for Chris Prout. Uh, you, Adam was just like, leave me alone with this for a while. I have something that I need to do. What, what did you come up with? Yeah, well, look, this isn't a normal sort of nerd pledge number. I just thought it was worth raising for a few reasons. So the, the Professional Cricketers Association put out a really moving video a couple of weeks ago and it came with a, a press release uh, and um, Michael Atherton wrote a stunning piece in The Times about his former teammate Alan Eggleston, who was the 540th English Test cricketer. He debuted in the final test of uh, the 1989 Ashes series and played those, I think he played four test matches across five years and took over 500 wickets for Kent, where he's one of the the favourite sons down there at Canterbury before retiring in 1998. When he played for England, in fact, it was was just at the end of the series where they'd announced the Rebel Tour to South Africa. So a number of players were were struck off, plus all the injuries they'd picked up along the way and the fact that Australia were thumping them. Mickey Stewart, who the pavilion is named after here, incidentally, said that Alan was like the 17th choice quick or something like that in an offhanded comment to reflect the extent to which they were struggling at the time but that was I don't think he meant it like that it just was reflective of where England were in that in that 89 series but it's after Alan's career ended that the story takes a, a turn for the worse. He was diagnosed with a brain tumour in 1999 after an epileptic fit when playing for Berkshire in the in the minor counties. Since then, he's gone on to raise an extraordinary amount of money for the brain tumour charity. It did shrink initially to the point where he was able to go on and work and teach and actually have a child in 2013 uh, with his wife Liz, a daughter named Beth. But unfortunately, he came back again in 2015 and he had two major strokes in 2018 and 2020 last year. And he's now receiving end-of-life care, which has been supported by the PCA Trust. This funding's allowed his wife, Liz, to look after Alan full-time. It's supported the stair lift they've put into their house so he can get around more easily and he's not sort of consigned to being just in his in his bedroom and they're still raising money it's remarkable stuff that he's doing this 5k fundraiser through the month of may which is going at the moment which is remarkable when you consider the the the, the challenges that he's got physically mike atherton went to visit him and explained in his piece that you know how challenging everything is um, for him uh, now so i'm going to pop that in the show notes the fundraiser that's being worked on at the moment with the pca trust so uh, yes a sad story of england test cricketer 540 but one of inspirational humanity as well alan eggleston thanks adam that is nerd pledge if we didn't get your number right drop us a message in the patron dms Give us a nudge towards what it should be and we'll come back to it on the revisits, which is what we're going to do after the break. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, couldn't be easier. Patreon.com slash the final word. Uh, then you get to play Nerd Pledge and we get to keep making this show. Breathe a time and then we'll be back to the revisits. Hi, I'm Isha Gua and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Speaking of people doing good philanthropic work, listener to the show, Declan Lawler, has decided to try to raise a bunch of money for the Lord's Taverners, a charity who we work with regularly on The Final Word. He's going to run the length of the Thames on land, not on water, (laughs) not going to swim it, and has sent us an update about his running progress. Yeah, so he had an injury and he wasn't able to sort of tick off the miles uh, that he wanted to, Declan, but he's back to running six days a week. Uh, He did 70 kilometres last week and aside from being knackered uh, he says that his general productivity is increasing because of the running that he's doing and he's sleeping better 
um, which of course is uh, the case for anyone that does recreational running. But for Declan, it's uh, not convinced. No, <laughs> yes, no, I can't. No, you're not going to get me running that easily. <laughs> I, I went for a run on Monday morning, knowing that it, it was likely the the jab was going to see me out of action for a couple of days. But I have been kind of twitching. Mm. I'm, I'm quite keen this weekend to hit the road and uh, go for a gallop. Uh, but no, Declan's doing plenty of that. He's got 180 kilometres ahead of him. No, 180 miles, sorry. It's old money, isn't it? 180 yeah. miles is the Thames track uh, that he's doing in mid-July. And, of course, that's a campaign that we are strongly getting behind on the final word. The link's all in the show notes. And it's part of this idea that the big fundraisers that Lord's Tabs normally do each year, the huge lunches and dinners and pretty much where rich people get in a room and they can rinse them, all for the right reason, you can't do that. Mm. I mean, even though we've got people back here at the Oval today, the fact that they're spread out staccato around the ground, we're not going to have days when we can have 500 people packed in a room auctioning whatever it is it's going to be a different kind of fundraising we've talked about the nickel and dime approach they've been taking uh, so far in, in 2021 much as they did with us in 2020 and we think the best way we can help is getting people to contribute to Declan's efforts because all of Declan's money that he raises inspired by hearing about the Lord's Tavs on the final word is going straight back mm-hmm. to the taverners which I think is just fantastic it is, and people listening can also start their own little fundraising efforts to try to get their friends and, and family and so on to chuck in some coins, their way to go to the Lord's Taverners, and, and all of that goes to funding programs to help kids who are living with disability or disadvantage, um, and Lord's Tavs do work in various countries around the world. They do a lot of stuff in the UK, um, but they do work overseas as well, as we've heard about with them getting sporting kit to uh, the the programs in Brazil, uh, supporting kids over there and so on. So all of that is at lordstaverners.org. You can find out information about their programs um, or you can look in the show notes for the link to Declan's campaign specifically. Yeah, and also if you want to get involved in, in the projects that Lords Taverners are helping for individuals. So basically they're saying if you want to do something wild and stretch yourself in the way that Declan is, they'll help you. It's not You're not on your own. They'll, they'll facilitate the project. They'll... You know, provide support with fundraising. They'll put in place the architecture so you can just focus on your challenge itself. So that's all in the show notes. And thanks again to Declan uh, for the work you're doing. We can't wait to watch and support you all the way through to July. Lordstaverners.org. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. Final Word Story Time. Madam Collins, Jeff Lemon. We're up to the revisits and we have quite a few this week. Uh, the first is Matt May, 506. Last week... I talked about South Africa, Australia, MCG 1910, of course I did, and Aubrey Faulkner's double century. But unfortunately, it wasn't right. Yes, Matt, in the month that bears his name, says, I always enjoy hearing Aubrey Faulkner stories. Matt, how often do you hear Aubrey Faulkner stories? Be honest with us. How often? Always? Always? I suppose if you listen to Jared Kimber's show, you probably hear one every second week. But always enjoy hearing Aubrey Faulkner stories as his career fascinates me. And I was interested in the 506s that you talked about that involved big comebacks. My 506 is also a big comeback. But more more local than the ones you talked about. And, and by that, he meant local to me. We divide local to Australia, as in, you know, it happened It happened over here. It even had a couple of greatest season that was interviewees coming up against each other. Well, that must have helped. It did. It did. I went through everybody we've interviewed on the greatest season that was, be it about Australia A or about the, the 1999 Cricket World Cup or about the final frontier decade between India and Australia. And I narrowed it down 
to a quite extraordinary Sheffield Shield game from 1992, February 92, uh, to be precise, at Adelaide Oval between Queensland and South Australia. So Queensland were the visitors. And I must admit, Jeff, I didn't know about this. I don't know when you've looked through it yourself whether this is a game that jumped out from your childhood, but it was lost to me until this week. So thank you so much, Matt, for giving me the chance to go through one of the more remarkable scorecards in first-class cricket. So Queensland with big Carl Rackerman uh, leading the team, uh, a team that included Alan Border and Ian Healy, who were senior players in the Australian team, and AB was captain at that stage, but Carl was the captain. They make 334 off the top, fairly conventional. Matt Hayden, a young Matt Hayden, um, top scores with 79. South Australia, all out 130. They're trailing by 204. Craig McDermott, 6 for 58. Carl Rackerman, 3 for 22. And Greg Rowell, one of our greatest season that mm. was guests, took 1 for 44. Queensland didn't enforce the follow-on, despite the fact that they'd only been out there fielding for 35 overs. What? Which in that In that era... <laughs> was very yeah. unusual. In that era, you just yeah. enforced the follow-on by default. But Rackerman said, yeah. fuck it, we're going to bat a second time. And so they did. And they did it well. They did it well. They made 301 for four declared in 75 overs. They didn't eat up too much clock. You know, they got the job done and they set mm-hmm. South Australia 506 to win. Matthew Hayden was top scorer once again, making 80. All a bit of a... Mm-hmm. All, all, all fairly conventional. They're going to win the game comfortably. Bit of a laugh. All They're the having a laugh, Governor. These Queenslanders are having a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then, some South Australians had had some other thoughts. So they they come together okay. in the middle session on day three. Loads of time uh-huh. to get the job done. But by the close on the third day, it's two hundred and four without loss. Greg Blewett's there. What? Greg Blewett's there. Another man from the greatest season that was. A young man, just twenty one years of age. Uh-huh. He's at stumps on ninety something. As is Andrew Digger Hilditch, who went on to become the chairman of selectors some years later. But unfortunately, yeah, Blewett was out uh, early, <laughs> early on the fourth day. So remember, they need 506 to win. They've already knocked off 204 of them on the third day. So, you know, it's, it's a manageable, in theory, a manageable task to rattle off uh, a further yeah. 300 and a bit runs across a, an entire day, 96 overs. But Blewett did fall. He didn't make his maiden mm-hmm. first-class 100. He was out for 98. Caught Healy, Bowl McDermott. I don't, many, don't know how many times uh, that was in school books um, over the course of about 15 years for Australia and Queensland. That too. Mm. Anyway, James Brayshaw, or Jamie Brayshaw, as he was known in that era, yep. came in at number three and made 39. Hilditch is still there. Hilditch ends up. Do you think he shared the idea that, that Tony Lockett was the Don Bradman of <laughs> AFL football? <laughs> I, I listened back to that the other day. I still can't believe you said it. Anyway, so uh, Hilditch uh, kicks on. He makes 137 for 307 balls when he was finally out. Then there's a little mini collapse. Um, David Hook's out. Joe Scuderi, final word favourite, oh. out both in single digits. It's 316 for five, and they still need four runs and over in the final session. You put it away, don't you? I mean, you kind of go, right, yeah. 200 runs from here or thereabouts. Four and over to win. So 190 to win, I should say. Four and over. Mm. Five wickets in hand. You're going to lose this game if you go for the runs. But Mm. nobody told Peter Sounder sleep this coming in at number seven to join the new captain of South Australia, Jamie Siddons. It was his first year at the Sackers, having, of course, been a champion at Victoria. The pair of Mm. them went for it. And they took it to 468 for six by this stage, it's Alan Border and Peter Taylor bowling and still, instead of McDermott and Rackham, and the fast bowlers are mm-hmm. knackered. But Siddons gets out. He's bowled by Rackham, who comes back into the attack for one final spell, and Queensland mm-hmm. have their chance. But 
in walks Tim Nielsen, joins Peter Sleep, and they have 38 runs to get in eight overs. And do you know what? They go and bloody do it. They needed one run from the final over. And after Rackerman beat the bat three times, Peter Sleep's on strike. He gets an inside edge. It spits away past Ian Healy. Nielsen to the danger end. Runs his bat in and at quarter past six, 6.16 to be precise, in front of 5,000 people that had piled into Adelaide over when they knew the chase was on. South Australia win remarkably by four wickets, chasing down 506. Peter Sleep, sounder, finishes on 97 not out from 154 balls. Nielsen, 14 not out. Their chase took 153.4 overs. Barry Gibbs, who was the SACA chief executive at the time, wrote a book, and I borrowed from that book in going through the game a little bit. He says here, I will never forget the sight of sounder sleep, arms raised above his head, a cheeky grin from ear to ear, standing in the middle of Adelaide Oval and looking up triumphantly towards his ecstatic teammates in the dressing room. It was the stuff that dreams are made of. What a chase. Remarkable that uh, the guy from the Bee Gees was so invested in cricket <laughs> in South Australia. Right? It was, I say for the record, Barry Gibbs, not Gibb, but still, yes. <laughs> he's like, look at that Peter Sleep. I can tell by the way he uses his walk that he's just made 97 not out. More than a leggy to me. <laughs> so, yeah. It was the biggest chase in the Sheffield Shield and remains the biggest successful chase in Sheffield Shield history. Mm-hmm. The next best was 471 uh, in 2014. And that was where Queensland turned the tables on South Australia with an Usman Khawaja classic. How's this? It was the second highest of all time. The highest was 507 in a game between the MCC and Cambridge at 1896 at Lords, where the MCC hauled huh. down 507, so one run more. Since then, it's been passed a couple of more times by Central Province in Sri Lanka, who chased 512 in 2003, and the South Zone in the time-honoured Julep Trophy mm-hmm. hauled in 537 in 2009. But still, the 506 uh, is still fourth all these years later. Thanks to Matt May for giving us the chance to take a proper look at one of the craziest cards, and indeed, perhaps the greatest comeback in Shield history. And what a chunky revisit. That was like a, a, a roast beef <laughs> side of a, of a revisit to start us off. I mean, I couldn't help it. Once you, once you see something like that, once I got a feel no. for what was happening here, I'm like, I've got to go deeper. I've got to go deeper. Yeah. Thus, I found the book and was able to make sure mm-hmm. I had the match details. The card didn't do it justice. You needed to know. That, I needed to <laughs> know what you happened. you were looking up in, in trance in order to. <laughs> <laughs> Bung on set you free and where we go. <laughs> What was that? A little deeper. That was that was Miss Dynamite, wasn't it? Yeah, different different areas, but you know, sort of roughly adjacent eras. That's Matt May, Lakshmi Govindasamy, the three seventy nine that came in in euros. Adam was looking at Michael Colin Cowdery and his life in cricket. Lakshmi says delighted to have made it up the list and score an historic exploration. She talked about the surprise when hearing one's own name coming down the earbuds, even though I realise this is inherently part of the Nerd Pledge concept. It is, and yet sometimes when your name comes around, uh, you're not expecting it, but there you are. Um, She says it was lovely to learn about a player I didn't know much about and interesting to have a, a Madras connection because that's where Cowdery was born. Lakshmi's parents met there when both were backpacking in the 80s. (laughs) But Colin Cowdery was not who she was going for. Perhaps she can help uh, redirect with a bit of geography. I was born and raised in northern New South Wales in the 90s, 2000s, where anything within a five-hour drive is considered local. So my number relates to a player who is a local legend during that era. 
Yeah, and I started by sort of thinking, what would be in a five-hour radius of northern New South Wales? And I mean, you're closer mm-hmm. to Brisbane than you are to Sydney by that equation, and it's sort of Byron-based, yep. two hours from Brisbane, but but seven hours from from Sydney in the capital. So, yeah, I thought more likely to be a Queenslander in, in the first instance, but there was kind of no one that quite ticked the box, and there was no one really with the right batting average, or and, and even three seven nine. That score was only made in that era once by Australia, and it was when Damian Martin uh, made one forty. So Mm. I went back to Lakshmi with that information and I realised I was closer than I thought because there was a WA connection, even though it wasn't Damien Martin. Well, what I thought when when we discussed these notes was um, there is no way in hell someone living in New South Wales would pick a Queenslander as their local <laughs> legend. Not a chance. Not going to happen. I say this as a Queenslander, of course. So it, it had to be a New South Wales connection, but... A lot of New South Wales players went to other places to play their cricket. Many, many, many of them over the time. And uh, who was one of those who happened to grow up somewhere close enough, uh, north New South Wales coast, Bellingen, just near Byron Bay? Why, it's none other than Adam Gilchrist. And how would that connect uh, with with Gilchrist, who who grew up in a town called Dorigo up there, lived in Juni, lived in Daniloquin, went to live in the Riverina area for a while, um, lived in Lismore for a time, all sort of, you know, the Riverina not so much, but, you know, most of that northern New South Wales for his formative cricketing years. Why would that link to 379? Because that is how many catches he took in test cricket. 379 catches, aside from the stumpings, of which there were quite a few more as well. He ended up with... Four, what was it? Four, it was 400 plus dismissals. Yeah, so 379 catches, 37 stumpings. I had a look at his one day right. stuff as well. So 417 catches and 55 stumpings in one day as 17 catches in T20 internationals, making 905 international dismissals. Only behind yeah. Mark Boucher, who, took, who had 998 international dismissals, but in 71 more appearances. So, you know, I think it was per innings. Gilchrist had 1.8 dismissals compared to Boucher, who was at 1.6, something like that. Right. Very nice. Very nice. So it's going to be Adam Gilchrist, local enough for Lakshmi Govindasamy with his 379 catches. Fantastic. Glad we were able to get to the finish line on that one. Cheers to Lakshmi for your help on that. Next up is Cameron Allen. So 170. We originally looked at Luke Ronke's 170 from 99 balls for mm. New Zealand, which I was which pretty bloody say, happy with. <laughs> that's a great answer. It was a really good answer. And in fact, Cameron uh, acknowledged it was a really good answer. It just didn't happen to be the answer he had in mind. No, that that's right. And before that, we were looking at WG Grace's 170, which was his second and final test century against Australia. What Cameron moved us closer and closer towards was the idea that there was a cap number involved and it was to do with the debut. And once we were armed with that information, we kept sort of dancing around it, dancing around it, and we finally got there, Jeff. Well, this is this this is an answer I'm, I'm very frustrated with my own performance on this answer because the first thing we looked at weeks ago with the 99 was Jess Jonathan's 99 on debut test debut in 2015 because you and I were both there at that match we watched it live it made an impression on us we remember it very fondly and we tried to find ways that it linked to 170 and couldn't 
find anything. We were looking through the scorecard and looking through career numbers and all kinds of stuff and eventually reluctantly concluded that it was not involved. We looked at, uh, we eventually got the info from Cameron that this involved a debut. So we were looking at 99s on debut. Owen Morgan made 99 on his one day debut for Ireland, but he's cap number 12 for Ireland and England cap 208. England cap 170 in one day as was Ian Blackwell. Uh, And somehow in all of this faffing about, I don't know how this happened, but we, uh, neither of us looked up the Australian women's cap numbers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just didn't think... I suppose because it was the two numbers that threw me here, but it was Jess Jonathan. She is the 170th test player uh, yeah. for Australia in women's cricket. And, and the 99, as you say, was, was a, a standout innings. It was the first women's test that I'd been to, and she was debuting uh, alongside uh, Nicole Bolton and Kristen Beams. And, look, they were in trouble early too on that first day at Canterbury. Mm. We often think about Elise Perry dominating England in that test with the ball, and she did. But, like, Australia were... 87 for four when Perry was Shrubsell's fourth victim, hooping the ball around like mad and Lanning was already out. And we're kind of thinking, well, England could bowl Australia out here, but Jonathan uh, ended up making 95 not out by the close on day one, taking Australia to 268 for eight and safe harbour. Unfortunately, she was out leg before wicket for 99, Catherine Brunt. Trapped her in front early on the second day, but yeah, it mattered little in the end because England were all out for 168 thanks to mm. Shoot and Perry. And Jonathan went on to make 54 and top score in the second innings as well. Remember that day, Jeff, when on the third, the third morning, it was. I've never seen rain or water gather on a cricket ground quite like it. And somehow, mm. three hours later, they were able to get an extended final session in, which gave Australia enough time to declare early on the fourth day, set England 263, and they bowled him out for 101. Perry, six for 32 at the same ground that she would take seven for 15 at in a one-day international mm. four years later in the next round of the Women's Ashes. So, um, but- on, on one of the drudgiest surfaces you've ever seen a match yeah. played on. On, yeah. but some of the some of the pitches they've given the women's team over the years, um, yeah, I will <laughs> I will always remember uh, Lydia Greenway trying to duck a bouncer that kept so low that it hit the top of her middle stump. Just, just a horrible surface to try to either bowl or bat on. Yeah, and, and it's a reminder now that we have all these women's tests in the schedule, which is absolutely brilliant news. In fact, the Australia-India test that we'll talk about on the weekly show uh, got announced within minutes of us hitting stop on our recorders on Tuesday when we recorded the, the weekly show. But yes, uh, the, the, the message that needs to be pumped out loud and clear from now until... Uh, the day these tests are played, the pitchers need to have something in them, and it didn't to Canterbury, mm. unfortunately. But um, but Jonathan, the way she drove down the ground that day, I, I thought at the time, well, this is a, you know, forget about her bowling. This is a, a classy player at number six. As it turns out, she's been a useful player with the bat, but often batting at eight or nine, and has turned mm. into one of the most, well, you know, well, Australia's number one spinner more often than not. You know, she is the first choice yeah. spinner. But he's is used in the white ball teams as a firewall sort of player now. Yeah, they, yeah. They, put, they put players ahead of her who are less reliable but swing bigger and, and use her as, as insurance in case something goes wrong. But it, it does undersell her ability with the bat. All right, Cameron Allen, that is your 170 or 170 as it related to 99. Jess Jonathan Canterbury, 2015. Jeff, next we have the 228 from Vivek Arcot. You last week had a number of options in relation to Indian royalty, which was the clue, specifically Nawabs. Yes, and Vivek said, I knew you would take me on this royal journey the moment I used the word Nawab. Well, that's what we're here for, Vivek. Um, he said, especially... <laughs> 
given that you have the hots for the Nawabs of Pataudi. Well, I've never considered it in that way. <laughs> but, you know, um, they're, 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 they're no longer with us. But if, if Mansur Ali Khan or Iftikhar Ali Khan were to ask the question, if the right Nawab were to ask the question, Adam, I would consider my answer. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, let me give you a couple of clues to steer you back on course, says Vivek. The Nawab in question is not a true royal, but considered as royal in Indian cricketing circles. The 228 is indeed a batting score in a test innings, but not the final score at the completion of an innings. It marks a punctuation during an innings which is etched in my mind. Uh, and this one fell to you, Adam. It did. And much as it was uh, with our previous uh, pledger, Cameron Allen, I've come up with a most appropriate <laughs> response, which isn't correct. So uh, I was looking at 228, uh, innings where 228 was important for India, and I was looking mm-hmm. at royalty. And thus... I found initially, at least, Sir Ganguly, when he made his... The Prince of Calcutta. The Prince of Calcutta, or the Maharaja, as he was known growing up, mm. due to his wealthy, aristocratic upbringing. And he made 239 against Pakistan in Isn't 2000. Isn't it great, can I say, that from those humble beginnings, he's fought his way up to be uh, the, the head of the BCCI? <laughs> Isn't that inspiring uh-huh. to see that no matter the <laughs> obstacles put in front of somebody, talent... An ability and work ethic can see them win through to senior uh, politically influential positions in a society. Doesn't that warm your heart? Oh, doesn't it just? So he made 239 against Pakistan in 2007. And I thought, based on what we know mm-hmm. about Vivek, that would have been quite relevant to his upbringing watching cricket. And I'm sure it was. Mm-hmm. It was a high-scoring draw. India makes 626. And I, I wondered, why would 228 be relevant? Well, it was. When he, when he struck a boundary to move to 228, he became the highest scoring Indian left-hander. Or should I say, it was the highest score made by an Indian left-hander in Test cricket, mm-hmm. overtaking Vinod Kumbli's 227, which was tallied against Zimbabwe at Delhi in 1993. And I thought, how clever is that? That must have stuck with Vivek, mm-hmm. who must be a left-hander. And Ganguly, mm-hmm. piece of history, in a test against Pakistan at the Chinnaswamy. That's every box ticked, isn't it, with the Prince of Calcutta? Chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. That's beautiful. And, and, I, and, I, went That's and, and I went and said to Vivek, I reckon I've got you, Saraf, you beauty, Prince of Calcutta. It's right, isn't it? That's wrong. It's not right. Uh, he, oh. he made it very clear to me that I needed to look at the Nawab part of it. it the, the Nawab wasn't a substitute for royalty. It was literally mm. someone who got known as the Nawab. I'm like, okay, start again. And for that, it didn't take me long. To was, it, was it Adam White? Was it RSN's uh, <laughs> host, Adam White? The Nawab of Tonk? Nawab of Tonk. <laughs> <laughs> Given the form he's shown in the last couple of years, it won't be long before he whacks a 228, tell you that. He's um, got to go to India. He's got to go to he's India. He's one of the informed players in Melbourne. Uh, but, uh, yes, so Vivek, after making it clear to me, I needed to look at Nawabs specifically, mm-hmm. I realised... There's Nawab two ways about it. <laughs> I realised that the first triple tonne for India, mm-hmm. it was made by a man who was known as the Nawab of Najafka, none other than Verinda Sawag. Now, this was one of two triple tons <laughs> that Sawag went on to make. The mm-hmm. first of which is this: in uh, 2004, they make 675 for five against Pakistan. So again, they are in the firing line. Um, he made 309 off 375 balls. He had Sachin there for support. They put on a massive stand for the third wicket. And why is 228 relevant? That's what he was on 
overnight on day one. So the stump score mm. was 356 for two. Sachin was 60. Saywag was on 228. And the next day he came back and completed the job and became the first Indian to make a, a test triple century. Four years later, he did it again against South Africa at Chennai when he made his crazy 319 from 304 deliveries and in innings that we have talked about far more on, on the final word. And in the third triple ton that India have had, so they've come in a cluster. They've had one in 2004, one in 2008, and another in 2016 is Kiran Nair. But we don't really talk about him, do we? It's like the, the black sheep of Indian no. cricket. We've kind of just washed over yeah. the fact that he is a, a triple century maker. But... Yes. The- well, it's almost become a bit embarrassing that he did so well. Like, it, you know, it was a bit undignified of him to make a triple. <laughs> he should he should have made 180 or something, and then that would have been fine. But it's interesting with those scores because I remember so vividly in 2001 when when Lakshman went past his double that there was so much focus on would he pass Sunil Gavaskar's 236 mm, as the highest mm. score for an Indian batsman, and it was. You know, it was this monumental figure, this two three six, uh, and and I guess when you look at it in retrospect, it seems a bit low that that was the highest ever score by an Indian player, and so many have gone past it since. Once he broke that, you know, then Sawag surges past it, what four or five times. Um, mm. Tendulkar goes past it, Ganguly goes past it, Dravid goes past it, and and they rack it up. Kohli's gone past it, and and so on and so on. Yeah, it, it's like laughably low, given that was the highest mm. score uh, back two decades ago. Just on quickest triple tons, by the way, obviously Saywags was, was fastest. He made it to 300 in 278 balls in 2008, which is mental. Um, that went past Matthew Hayden, who did it in 362, which was the previous quickest. And the third fastest is actually the first Saywag triple, where he did it in 364 balls. By minutes, though, they're all slower than Hammond and Bradman. So Hammond reached his triple hundred, in Auckland in 1932 in just 288 minutes, which is the fastest triple on record by time. Mm. So we don't know how many balls Hammond faced because they didn't keep that, unfortunately, but we know it was the fastest on that metric. And Bradman at Leeds in 1930 got to 300, of course, inside a day in 336 minutes. So suffering your jock, say, Wag, who, of course, he may be the Nawab of Najafka, but he's still on the final word shit list. Uh, so uh, make no mistake <laughs> about it. Um, but he did make India's first triple ton, and that is Certainly, certainly what Vivek Mm -hmm. Arcot was steering us towards. 228, what he was not out on day one. Thank you, Adam. And uh, interesting all that talk about fastest triple hundreds. Just just file that away. Just make a little mental note of that, that uh, something related may come up soon. Now, Alex Brown, $3 even. And Alex Brown had previously sent us two New Zealand-related numbers, which we'd got. And now he said, all right, I'm going to give you a very obscure one, which is also New Zealand-related. And we had a look at it the other week and, and didn't get it. But Alex wrote back to say, hello to Ali Aldroyd, as you know that she'll be listening whenever you read this. All I can add is that my $3 pledge could also have been $3.50. And as it transpires, could have been anywhere between $3 and $3.50. Mm. Look forward to your second attempt. Uh, okay. Yeah. You started with this. I did. It, this was hard. This, this was, um, this was a, you've got to kind of know it or you've got to have the right search terms. So <laughs> in the end, where we landed was that it was going to be somewhere between... 30,000 and 35,000 after spending quite a bit of time looking at Hadley and 300 and 350 and 3.0 and 3.5 and so on. But um, where I basically left it was that Hadley bowled 21,918 deliveries in Test cricket, so that couldn't be it. 
his series, I just want to say, in 85-86 in Australia, 33 wickets at 12, and five mm. of the six innings that he bowled in, he took five wickets. And, of course, that meant that he had two 10-wicket mm-hmm. matches by definition. So, you know, only a three-test match series. I wish it had been four or five, because had it been, he would have broken every record. Yeah, I, and, and I was looking at that as well. I was thinking, was it first-class deliveries in a career? Because, But we don't actually have a, a full number for that because the scorecards are incomplete. That's right, so, yeah. He he conceded just under twenty seven thousand first class runs, but I figured he was so parsimonious that there's no way that he did that off as few as thirty five thousand deliveries. You know, he must have right. yeah, many more twice as many deliveries yeah, yeah. Of, at least um, as runs, given just how much better he was than just about everybody. You know, in, in New Zealand domestic cricket, especially. So that didn't seem to add up. I was having a look at crowd numbers from nineteen eighty five to see if I could find a, a crowd that was in that 30 to 35,000 uh, sort of sort of range because that, that's where you got to with Alex was that the 300 to 350 was was actually sort of falling somewhere between 30,000 yeah. and 35. Well, well, Alex said to me it wasn't a conventional number and after some more <laughs> probing, we, we finally arrived at the fact that it had nothing to do with three and 350. It was 30,000 and 35,000. So once okay. we crossed that threshold, mm-hmm. it meant that, you know, if you were looking at the right looking in the right place, you might be able to happen upon it and Jeff I don't know how you've done this talk me through how you've done this okay well like I said I was looking at the 85 86 summer and I you know I knew it had to be related to that because we'd we'd got that much we knew that it was probably related to Hadley and it was about that summer that season and I, I looked at the crowd numbers for all of the different venues and matches and so on and couldn't find anything there Uh, And then I was reading about the presentations at the end of the summer and something came up that just rang a little bell where Richard Hadley, unsurprisingly, after dominating in that three-test series against Australia and winning that series in Australia, won the prize for the international player of the season. He won the car. uh, He won the car. He won an Alfa Romeo sedan, which, having looked at the photographs of it, it's a pretty modest-looking vehicle. You know, it's not a <laughs> it's not a sexy Alfa Romeo. It's not a like pull up at the gelati shop and lean out the window and say ciao, and like you know, several people come and jump in your car to come home with you. It's it's like it's a you're doing the grocery shopping in this Alfa Romeo. But they were going to ship this car to New Zealand for him. You know, that was part of the deal was we'll, we'll send it home for you. And, uh, you know, Richard Hadley said, great, I'll, I'll, let's do it. I'll have the car. Now, this happened when a friend of the show, Jeremy Coney, was captaining New Zealand. And as it turned out, this became, if I may use the term, a brouhaha. It, it, became, <laughs> it became a real problem because whenever players won cash prizes in those days, they were supposed to put them into a pot and be split among the whole team. They still do. Most of them were, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. They weren't getting... They weren't getting paid that much and, you know, that was sort of how it was done and Hadley had always done that. And on this occasion he was told, well, you'll have to sell the car and and put the proceeds into the pot. And he was like, no, but it's a car. They haven't given me money, they've given me a car. Uh, you know, like they give you the big magnum of champagne, you don't have to sell the champagne. You know, they've given me a thing. And so he wanted to keep it because he'd already sold a couple of previous cars that he'd been given. And he was like, well, I quite like this car, I'd like to keep it. Uh, and some of his teammates got really mad about it. Well, I can understand that. As somebody who owns a car with 31 other people, I get that it's impossible mm. to, to, to... Having a timeshare arrangement, as we do with the Batmobile, would not be viable. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> for the Alfa Romeo. So yeah, so so he was like, look. Let me just keep the car. And and can I say, it, it ended up giving him a bit of a reputation for being a tight ass, but it, it it seems pretty unreasonable that given he was so much better than everybody else in his team and he single-handedly won them that test series just about, give him the fucking car. Like, come on. Who, who of the other 10 players in that team can really say, no, I deserve one-eleventh of the proceeds of you being the freakish best cricketer that our country has ever or will ever produce, I deserve an equal share. Fuck off, mate. Go back to New Zealand. Take your check. Like, be grateful for the previous car that he sold. Anyway, I think that's that's all fairly ridiculous. But the reason that this relates to, to, to what we're talking about is that when he said he wanted to keep the car, he was told by the management, well, in that case, you'll have to chip into the pot the amount of cash that the car is worth. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you think it's worth? And they said... Thirty to thirty-five thousand New Zealand dollars, and that is Alex Brown's number. Oh dear me! I, 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 it, as you say, sometimes you just got to know it. You got to know where you're looking. Uh, and Jeff, mm. you knew where you were looking there eventually. Well done to can you. I, can I give you one little follow-up piece that you will please, enjoy? Please, please do. As someone who who owns a Batmobile with twenty-one other people, there's a there's a fan group in New Zealand called the Beige Brigade, run yes. by a couple of very enthusiastic blokes. They currently own the Richard Hadley Alfa Romeo. <laughs> they found it and they bought it and they, to this day they own it and oh, can drive it kindred around. Kindred spirits. I've got to have to find these guys. <laughs> Fantastic news. Fanta- you would have seen, Jeff, that the Batmobile made an appearance. Uh, I did. A, a number of appearances on the, on the TV news the other week when it was loaned out to the club for their, um, to launch the celebrations around the, the 1991 uh, Premiership reunion 30 years on. It also sat in front of the MCG on Mother's Day for the Hawthorne West Coast game where Dermot Burton did a, did a sort of piece to camera with, with Fox footy for it and, and all the rest and people were able to come and have their photo taken with it and so on. So it's, it's doing some good already. All right, we have a few more revisits to look at from Shane Fagg, Sean McGiven and John Trevelyan, but I think we're going to come to those next week because we've already been going for a fair while today. Yes. Sometimes uh, uh, cricket podcasts go longer than you expect. <laughs> so let let us uh, – we're sorry to keep you in suspense, but, but I'm pretty confident about all of these answers, but we will come back to them in seven <laughs> days' time. We will. I mean, this is this is this says a bit about how story times evolve, doesn't it? So it used to be sort of half an hour before a feature interview. Then we're like, yeah. oh, we can't really do the feature interview anymore, like from the archives because the show's too long. And now even yep. this bit is too long. <laughs> so we've got. <laughs> it says a bit about the nature of the clues and the nature of the the things that are being sent through, and I suppose the amount of work we have to put in as a consequence to get the show on the road well, each week. It also, the the nature of just how much detail because we used to be like, oh. 324, that's Dean Jones' cap number. Next, you Next know, whereas yeah. now we're like, let us tell you the story of Dean Jones. <laughs> Settle back. <laughs> Gather around, kids. <laughs> you know, some yeah. sort of Homeric ode um, yeah. per per player. But, you know, I, I'm enjoying it. It's I okay. People Works are enjoying me. it because they keep downloading it and listening to it. So, uh, Jeff, let's confirm some numbers we did get right. We'll keep this quick, actually. The first is Matt Smith, not that Matt Smith. Uh, although, after we talked about the other Matt Smith uh, and in the Matt Smith clue last week. The Matt Smith I talked about appeared on Alan Partridge last week on the very same night. So uh, <laughs> Matt Smith, I've said Matt Smith seven times, let's make it eight. Matt Smith 317, he was referring to Ken Rutherford's mm-hmm. hangover against the DB close 11 in 1986 when Rutherford made 317. Mm-hmm. Yes, the... <laughs> 
the, um, uh, every time you say Brian Close, all I think is um, Brian Close, Tiny Dancer. It, it's, it's, it's a problem that has been happening in my head. I also wondered if a Matt Smith could be the person who makes mats, you know, if that's your trade, if you're a mat maker. Oh, he's a fine Matt Smith. Um, yeah. It could be. But, yeah, Ken Rutherford was correct. Unsurprisingly, says Matt, you did nail it with rudders racking up the 317 while in an average state. Uh, he's moved into a career post-cricket mainly in the racing world and is CEO at the Hawkesbury Racing Club in New South Wales. Uh, a couple more tidbits. Close finished up with 34,994 first-class runs thanks to walking when he feathered one down the leg side in this game. Huh. A line from a match report says, when asked why he gave himself out, he said, it's an honourable game and that's the way I was brought up. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he spoke like that. He probably didn't. Um, Matt Smith is also a loyal, long-distant servant to Albion Cricket Club in Dunedin, a fine part of the world where Clary Grimmett came from, so it can't be, can't be wrong. It can't be wrong. Thank you, Matt Smith. Thank you, Ken Rutherford. The 444, Crispin Crunch. Uh, Jeff talked about uh, Kim Hughes's career boundaries, and he was right. He was yes. correct. Excellent. Well done, said Crispy. Kim Hughes' boundary count was exactly what I was referring to. My fond memory is of a curly, blonde-haired cricketer dancing down the pitch and punching a lofted cover drive time and time again in a day. Well, uh, given we were talking about lofted cover drives and Viv Richards and pioneers and players ahead of their time, at the start of the show, it's only right that we end uh, by talking about Kim Hughes, who was similarly enterprising in his career for Australia and Western Australia. And uh, a little bit of banner mania, or, um, or 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 not quite. Now, a scorecard that we were sent, which you know, at a glance, seems pretty extraordinary. We're told seventy-two runs off the first two overs, then the third over included three sixes and a hat trick, ninety for three off three overs. Now, you look at this scorecard, you see. Uh, an opening batsman for Audley Cricket Club, first 11, named Holloway, making 54 off 10 balls with nine sixes, which means nine sixes in a row and then getting out. While the partner, Jay Redman, makes 42 off seven balls uh, with seven sixes, and then there are two first ball ducks to follow. And this all seems pretty extraordinary, but mm. it seems a little hard to believe. <laughs> Yes, there was some myth-busting going on with this. I think this was a screenshot. So we got it from a couple of people, including Sam Hills on Instagram. Uh, and the best we can tell via messages on Twitter is that this has been mocked up and bunged on that Test Match Special Appreciation Society Facebook page. So, And that's how it mm -hmm. ended up making its way to us. So not outside the realms of possibility that it may have happened, but for every single ball to have been hit for six, followed by a hat trick, it didn't quite... We'll put it this way. No one can find the card. So we're tipping it's a hoax. Yeah. I, look, I've been looking through the um, Audley Cricket Club batting cards. I'm looking at right now at the career stats of Richard Holloway, the opener, who is apparently <laughs> who is a real person and played in this game. Uh, but can I say that Richard Holloway's high score in this year it was 25? He didn't play in 2020. And in 2019, his highest score was 51. So uh, that at least in a rudimentary way, would indicate that he did not make 54 in any of the last three years. And it's probably unlikely that this card would have just come up from four years ago. Uh, so I don't think it's real, but it is funny. It is. It is. Um, thanks for sending it anyway. We're enjoying getting all of these bannermans. There's one in the can for next week as well. Uh, Jeff, I think 
I think that should be where we put an end to this episode of Final Word Storytime as Middlesex make their way back out to the middle after a 20-minute rain delay uh, through lunch. The lights are still on all at the Oval. Uh, I'm going to go back outside and, and watch some cricket and write an article about Kyle Jamison and do all the other things that we do when we're not making the final mm-hmm. word. But I'll tell you what, it's been fun making this edition of the show. We've learnt a lot of things along the way, not least about Bill Pontsford and the 506 that South Australia made in 1992 and a few other greats of the game. Uh, thank you to everybody on our Patreon page for making it possible to tell these stories each weekend. We're nearing uh, the James Anderson 614, as we mentioned on the weekly show. We got within one. Then there was the change of month, which means we we lose a few people as credit cards mm-hmm. expire and we have to kind of build up that bank again. Help us get to James Anderson by the time England play their first test match of the summer on the 2nd of June. Do so by going to patreon.com forward slash the final word and submitting a nerd pledge. Uh, we should also thank the Lord's Taverners for the fantastic work they do. As we mentioned in the middle of the show, all of the information is in the notes. And if you want to support Declan on his run, that'd be just fantastic. Thank you to Seabus Super. Seabus have been with us for, I reckon, Jeff, two years, nearly mm-hmm. 23, 24 months. Amazing to have worked with them throughout the course of that time. Uh, they've been fine supporters of the final word. And last but certainly not least, thank you to the team at Bad Producer Productions who help us make a show twice a week. Not least Dave Collins, our long-suffering editor who has to sit through a lot of restarts and a lot of stuff-ups and make us sound far more polished than we actually are. (laughs) Uh, It's a web of lies. It's a web of lies. And one day we'll all be found out when we have to record this (laughs) podcast with an audience. Oh, wait, we already did that. Um, It was was okay. It went fine. (laughs) Um, Yeah, look, and... and I just say to everybody out there, I, th- I think you're doing great. You know, I think like it's not always easy just to keep making it through the day. You're doing really well. Keep it up. Final word, story time. Thanks for your company. Thanks for being part of what we do here on the show and can't wait to do it all again next week on the weekly show. Until then, have a nice weekend. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it.